it's Hillary from Midriff. I want to welcome our newest podcast sponsor to the show, DistroKid. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all major streaming platforms and artists get to keep 100% of their royalties, which is bonkers and amazing. Midriff listeners get 30% off at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Midriff. Again, that's distrokid.com slash VIP slash Midriff. Thanks so much. Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I'm your host, Hillary Jones. So I had a pretty good holiday so far with my tiny little family, and I hope you were slash are able to relax a little bit. I feel like we all need that right now uh, and have needed it, but hopefully you have a moment where you can get a little bit of uh, rest. I will say one thing that I've been doing as uh, things have been a little bit calmer is I have been uh, listening to Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower on audiobook, which has been the best slash worst decision I've ever made. <laughs> it's it's a really amazing story in so many ways, but can get kind of gruesome and dark before, I believe, I haven't finished it yet, uh, really light and hopeful uh, I, I based on what I know about it. That's kind of the direction it's going. You probably read it. You probably know all about this. This is nothing new to you, but it is um, new to me because I have not actually read it before. So I'm looking forward to seeing exactly where it ends up landing, even though I'm not looking forward to it being over. So I, I personally, I tend to almost exclusively read nonfiction, but this has been on my list for years and I'm glad I finally dug in, even if I'm not an, you know, actually reading the book proper, which, you know, that's a whole other situation. How many books do you have next to your bed? I have many. I It's, it's something. So anyway, uh, I hope you get to read or, you know, watch a movie or somehow, you know, play music, connect with people in a way that is positive for you in this time. Anyway, so my gear-related holiday situation is that I did get a, a DSM Humboldt simplifier, which is an analog preamp and cab simulator for recording guitar, and it was made in Brazil. So hopefully I can get some like good sounds out of that and share with you at some point on the Instagram. I also got some new Biodynamic D770 Pro headphones, uh, which sound great. They're super comfy. I am wearing them right now. And I had mentioned last episode that I was going to try to record something cool using the Earthquaker Devices data corruptor on my toy drums, which I have done. Uh, I did a full like toy drum, guitar and bass arrangement situation, but the video is holding me up a bit. Like I have the whole thing recorded. It sounds great, but the video is it's it's fine. It's rough. I, I don't know how to do it yet. So I don't know how to make it look good. Somebody, uh, you know, if you want to teach me how to use Final Cut Pro virtually. We can have a Zoom or something. <laughs> As a barter, I, I maybe I have a skill or something I can barter with you. I don't know. Hit me up. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So speaking of Earthquaker, I would like to thank Midriff's sponsors. First of all, Earthquaker Devices. So there is a very nice video that they just posted talking about the measures that they've taken this year to keep running during the pandemic, which I recommend you check out. You can see all the ways that they have been really thoughtful about supporting their employees, and it really shows in the video. With that, here is the Earthquaker Devices YouTube comment of the week from YouTuber Ben Pesh, who said of the Plumes Overdrive, Earthquaker is going to sell a billion of these. 
pretty sure they have. <laughs> and at, it's like $99. Do they even make money on them? Maybe not. But I am glad that they make them. They sound great. And at the end of the episode, I will explain more about why I'm so glad that they make them. Uh, check EarthquakerDevices.com for more info. And thanks once again to Studio 121. Skylar can help you with all of your audio needs at a super reasonable price. Editing, production, recording, jingles, podcast music, literally anything you need, she can help you with it. Find Studio 121 on Instagram at Official Studio 121. So these sponsors support the podcast, and I hope you support them too. You can find links in the show notes to the sponsors, to the Midriff social media stuff, Instagram, Facebook, website, all that business as well, and information about today's guest, who is Sarah Lando, the lead guitarist in the Julie Ruin a guitar instructor, a professor of music history and sonic arts who writes her own experimental pieces. She creates her own experimental instruments as well, which we get into a bit. She has her hands in lots of different spaces, and it's really just awesome to hear about all of them, including her experience learning Pro Tools, even though she hated it, <laughs> her experience teaching, her experience touring, and uh, much more than that. So with that, here is my interview with Sarah. Welcome to Midriff. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, can you introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about uh, yourself and your general background and background with music? Uh, In under two minutes. No, I'm kidding. You can, uh, you can take, take all, all the time you want. <laughs> First of all, I, yeah, I'm a little, I get kind of nervous talking in podcasts, but my name is Sarah Lando and she, her my pronouns. I am a, uh, I guess, primarily a guitarist, musician, and a professor uh, of music. I've been in quite a few bands. I am located in Brooklyn, New York. And yeah. So, so what are you excited about working on right now? What's happening for you? I know we're in this weird quarantine still. Uh, yeah. At this time, I'm building a new, kind of a new pedal board, I'm building some new uh, instruments out of uh, kind of using Max MSP, using sound, found sounds. I'm trying to incorporate some new ideas for compositions with them. I just ordered a instrument from uh, someone in Amsterdam who built it for me, and it's on its way. He built one for me and also Lee Ronaldo. So, oh dang. Yeah, what so is it? Gonna... What is what is this magical instrument? Uh, there's a there's a picture on Instagram. Well, it is. <laughs> it looks a little bit like a lap steel, but it's you can change the settings. Uh, being used to string instruments, it's going to be really fun to do uh, kind of like a prepared guitar. I don't. Do you know what prepared guitar? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like prepared piano is what John Cage made famous, where he would go mm -hmm. in and put all the little uh, clips and things on a piano and. So when you play it, you get its different sound. It almost has a little bit of um, futuristic sound. And 
uh, you just don't really know what you're going to get. So I've been doing some prepared guitar for the past few years. Uh, sometimes I'll show up to a show and they say, what are you doing? And I was opening, I'm like, prepare guitar. I'm like, oh, cool, you prepared some pieces? I'm like, no, no, it's called prepare guitar. <laughs> but that's okay, because I realize it's not that famous of a, an idea. But then the stuff started getting too heavy, so I've, I've gone down to just using twisty ties at this point and wrapping mm. them around uh, strings and getting some really interesting sounds that I personally love. And sometimes keeping a string open so I can get like a drone. That's awesome. Um, so I've been doing, yeah, it's really, uh, there's no rules, but there's something where you just don't know what you're going to get. And if you get something right, then you can use it for your compositions. So in a sense, it's a bit of sound art mixed with kind of an obsession with timbre right now. And so that's what I've been doing. Um. That's awesome. Yeah. So so when you, so how long have you been doing more of the like uh, sound art work generally? Like when did you get into that? So the experimental music and sound art and, you know, prepare guitars is fairly new, uh, probably in the past four years. I started to follow um, some sound artists and they were so amazing that I, I just, I went and I got an MFA in sonic arts and uh, now I teach a lot of that as well. Mm-hmm. I, I teach the music history and I teach a lot of sonic arts in it with cool. the idea of uh, bringing in as many women as possible that are in the field because women in technology, you know, that's a big subject. Oh my God. We could get into that all day. I'm very excited. (laughs) I have some questions and I want you to expound and share everyone, share your knowledge with everyone about that because I feel like, like you teach a whole class on pink noises, right? I did last semester. Yeah. So I want to talk about that because I feel like the technology thing is so important Yeah, with regard to all of this. So uh, I'm super psyched about that. Yeah. So it sounds like you're doing some really cool, like kind of experimental stuff. Are you doing, is that kind of your main focus right now then? It is because doing, doing some sound art and working on this, uh, compositions at home with found sounds and that sort of thing. It's, it's good to do during a pandemic. I mean, we can't yeah. play in person. <laughs> so it's been a, an obsession. Do I actually have time to sit and study some of these people that I've liked? Also, I've had a music studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, for since 2003, where I've been teaching girls guitar and drums, and I just gave it up during the mm. pandemic. So I closed the door in 17 years, 17 uh, in the same <laughs> in in my music space, which was um, I'd rent out to other bands and we'd record there and all that. So I just shut the door on that and the transition of doing everything and away from that is is kind of new. So yeah. Uh, so, so thinking about like continuing on our gear train, we'll get off of it. We'll get back on of it on it. Uh, but like your first experience with gear, when did you like first get into gear? What was your first gear? So my, my first instrument was, uh, I got a drum kit and I, I definitely just wanted to be a drummer in the nineties. I played a lot of drums. Um, but my first, uh, electric instrument would be my Telecaster guitar, which is actually behind me that I've just gotten fixed. And now I'm, uh, I can't stop playing Americana on it because <laughs> it's made for that Nashville sound in the nineties. I had a band that it was three girls and we, you know, we were really into, uh, we all worked at CBGB's. So we got to play there every week and we got to open for everybody. And I was there almost 11 years. So, mm. so we got to, you know, perform there a lot. And then, you know, we'd get a lot of guys that's come with their arms crossed staring at the stage, not clapping between songs, but just like analyzing our performance. Uh-huh. <laughs> and even on stage, I'd be like, 
Hey, Jackie, look, there's one of them. She's like, yep. We just, there would always be that guy. And then there'd be the guy that afterwards would be like, you girls want to be famous? We're going to Japan, that guy, you know, because uh-huh, we were uh-huh. young and I'm only five, five and I was the tallest in the band. So they were very petite and we, everyone thought we were teenagers. We weren't, we were like pretty old, actually, not that old, but we were in our twenties. <laughs> uh-huh. So we had someone record us. And it wasn't what I wanted at all. Mm-hmm. And I was so heartbroken. And uh, for those of you, you know, men or women that have made records, you know how it feels to make a record and have that or that box of CDs in your home. And you're like, it's not the right production. Oh, yeah. And it's this labor of love you put into it, but you don't know how to communicate. So then I'm like, we'll try a different. They're like, why aren't you putting the album out? And I just didn't want to say that it it wasn't lo-fi enough. (laughs) (laughs) Can you make this sound worse? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I totally get that 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, this is, Mm. so we tried again. And then I just didn't know how to communicate it. And I felt, you know, you're always trying to make people happy uh, when you're, a lot of girls are raised to, you know, we want everyone to be happy. I mean, even in my band, we felt that we're like, we want our producer to be happy, you know, so we're, we're not sure how to, delegate some things um yeah like 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 self-advocate or even know how to express that yeah that's right that's right even though I was a feminist activist before I even knew what those words were Mm -hmm. like I've been just I was born I guess you know my mom was I guess so I picked that up but I didn't even know what any of that meant I just was like this is what happens and Mm -hmm. I will fight for it but so I didn't have the terminology for recording So I decided to make it my life goal. And it's been really hard for me. I don't naturally love looking at a soundboard. I'm just like, ooh, you know. Yeah. Now I I worked on it so hard and then I started taking Pro Tools courses. And then I was, the only thing I've ever cried about was, I think, Pro Tools. (laughs) (laughs) In music, I've cried a lot. Yeah, sure, sure. (laughs) I, yeah, that, that, that feels right. Sure. The options are overwhelming. It's a whole Mm -hmm. new language. And then Mm -hmm. it's built, Pro Tools is built as a soundboard. So if you've never done live analog sound and you look at it, you're like, I don't know what all these acronyms are because you didn't do that first. I I eventually got Pro Tools certified so I can even teach it at this point, but it took me a long time. And I want women to know that the culture isn't pushing and trying to help you. It's very hard to take a class with seven guys that'll stand in front of the soundboard and answer quickly. It's very easy to get pushed back. And I, I found that in technology, it's harder. I found it harder in technology to uh, push myself as a woman than in guitar. Well, why do you think that I, is? I, I wonder if I should take that back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's just a, it's a different thing, right? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are less women in, in tech, right? you know, uh, it's harder for me, I think, cause, uh, a lot of it's, uh, so abstract in sound. It's a lot of weird, like physics stuff, and a lot more jargon. I think is part of it too. It's a lot of jargon, yeah, yeah. And it, it's a lot of people that understand it quickly that try to teach it, and that's not, you know, if you understand that sound is like water and that's how it moves. When somebody finally said that after like seven years, I'm like, oh, why didn't anyone <laughs> tell me that <laughs> all this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so interesting. So, so when you first started playing, it seems like you were doing more like kind of garagey stuff and that's why you probably wanted more of like a lo-fi thing, right? Yeah. We, we loved the trash woman and we loved, um, five, six, seven, eight bands like that in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted, I wanted to be really lo-fi. I wanted like, 
I didn't want the feedback cleaned up, things like that. So so you play a lot of like Gretsch style guitars. I mean, obviously you have your telly. How is how have like how's the gear had an effect on like or how's the garage sound had an effect on the things that you are selecting gear wise? That's kind of funny because uh I would obviously knowing that you're probably in a different spot now, but just in yeah. general, as as you think about how your gear life has uh, evolved. Right. So I I mean, I could only afford the telly early on and my drum kits uh, was from a garage sale. And then I just sort of put it together. That's pretty garage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the Midwest, it's from Milwaukee in a garage sale for right. 50 bucks, a Ludwig vintage kit. So I really Ooh. scored. So I've been using the same one for 25 years. Um, the, the funny thing is I don't have any, I have a lot of guitars, but none of them are over 500 bucks. I'm always mm-hmm. rebuilding them or just putting new pickups or spray painting them. Some of my amps, I guess my twin amp is my main sound. Um, I've had, uh, I've liked the twin sound since, you know, as long as I can remember. And mm-hmm. I'm a little bit snobby about tube amps. I like them. <laughs> And the guitars, you know, depend. I play in, when we were touring with the Julie Ruin, I was playing um, a silver tone, uh, which, you know, those are like Sears made originally. Um, but I have I, a silver tone bass right here. Ah, like, uh, yeah. I can reach it. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. the best. Yeah. I, they're also very light. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. And I needed that because I'm not very big and strong and I was carrying way too many pedals and I was carrying, I have a Les Paul hybrid that I put together. I kind of built pieces out of it and that was getting too heavy. So I got a silver tone and then I got a, um, electromatic Gretsch, mm-hmm. um, which is also very light. So that makes a lot of sense. So there's like some real, like, uh, actual, just like structural reasons for selecting the gear that you're selecting. Yeah. But so- it, the, the pickups are almost like well, I guess the pickups on the on the on the silver tone are those like the lipstick pickups? No, those are the actual humbuckers, so those are okay. fine. Um, my telly has the lipstick pickup. Okay, which is why I'm into it right now because it's been so long since I played something with a lipstick pickup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I I'm just thinking about like playing because they, I th- feel like that like some of those older older pickups have like particular sounds to them, like lipstick pickups or like the like kind of like Filtertron or El Nico style, you know, that would be in an old Gretsch or whatever. So yes. it's, it's just interesting. It's exciting. Um, Cause I feel like not everybody, not every, that's not everybody's jam, you know, like it, it gives it a very specific feel. Right. I mean, I think every guitar sounds different. I think every app sounds different. You know, sometimes you don't know why they sound like what you want and why one's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's nice that you can like, I think that's sort of the fun of it, right? Like I think some people are like, I don't really care about gear. And I totally understand that because I, you know, it's just like, oh, this is the tool that I'm using to like accomplish the goal of creating the song that I want to create. But I think the, the experimentation is part of the fun in my mind. I agree. Sometimes the guitar doesn't matter. Say like I'm going through this Apollo and I just Mm -hmm. need a signal and then I'm going to do everything with my computer, Yeah. then the guitar doesn't matter so much. But when you have to control, you know, the sound that, you know, I not being a singer, the, the sound of the instrument is my voice. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting too, because I, 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 I'm with you 100%. It's interesting though, to even think about the way that different instruments feel and how that can influence the way that you're playing. So like playing a telly, playing your telly versus playing your silver tone might even make you play differently. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and what's so what's can you describe that difference obviously the 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 neck feels different 
the telly has my telly I got so long ago that it's it's like uh the memories of its history are very important to me and you know I never mm. thought I would be somebody that would say that about a guitar but <laughs> <laughs> I've I've now that person so I guess I've graduated to something like that but you know I've even selling some guitars uh have been emotional experiences and then there's some that I'm just like good riddance you know, <laughs> get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Your work I never is done. Want to see you again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for as far as like pedals and things like that, because I saw uh, when I was researching that you also used to like take pictures of pedal boards and stuff too. Yeah. So like, where are you at with pedals right now? What's happening for you? Um, well, first I'm, I'm happy you still keep a blog because my blog was a big <laughs> deal to me. And around 2009, all of a sudden you, you look at anyone's blogs and they never are past that date. Yeah, 2012. It just yeah. like froze. It's about 2012. I recommend starting one way after that. And then, you ah, <laughs> yeah. But for, yeah, my blog, I would take pictures of everyone's pedal boards. And then I secretly know whose pedal board they all are. Um, mm. But some of them I didn't want to expose. And some mm-hmm. guitarists are very private about it. Yeah. I know that Jack White would spray paint over his pedals so we, nobody could see that they're, they're all silver. So we didn't know what they were. Mm. Um, you don't want to steal sounds, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. They're also just, they're beautiful because the petals all have different colors. They're so creative, you know? And then if you mix like cheap ones with custom ones, I mean, like I have a pedal that costs more than my guitar mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, because it's, it's an RS Strauss, um, from, uh, um, Nick Cave's band. He put a, mm. he made a, a pedal from the birthday party. Uh, he's long since passed away, but, um, his, I got his pedal a few years ago and I was like, Oh, I don't think they can put a price on that. I just, <laughs> right. this is, this is it. It's the most I've ever spent on a pedal. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of them, uh, they're beautiful. I love putting them together. I love seeing what they can do. They're, they're art, you know? So do you have anything in particular, any favorite pedal? So that seems like a obviously very cherished pedal. Uh, <laughs> do you have any others that you're particularly psyched about right now? Yeah. A couple of years ago, I got the Whammy um, Octave Jumper. So um, the, did, not the Digitech yes, Whammy Watt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that way uh, I was doing this piece where um, I have a piece called uh, etude for four electric guitars, but on the recording and live, I, I played all the parts, but eventually I want to get four women to do it. So mm. just throwing it out there, three others. Mm. Cool. Um, but when the, you know, I, I just loop them and then there's a point where you hit the thing and you drop down. It's an octave, uh, dive bomb. Nice. And so I've been really excited about this dive bomber. That sounds very epic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So when you, when you're using reverb, do you tend to use the reverb? I'm asking mostly because of the, because of your previous uh, excitement for garage music, but like, do you, are you more of a, a reverb on the, do you use the reverb on your twin generally or do yeah. you use? Yeah. Okay. That was, that's my only question related to that. Right. I do. <laughs> and I mean, I love, um, I was also working on a piece with, which is just a telly and twin mm-hmm. and no pedals. I guess I got to the point where it flipped. Came back around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is part of an MFA thing where I, I was like, I'm just going to see how much texture I can get out of this. And it's pretty amazing. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. Twins are so beautiful. They're they just are. like, they just, they're just this round. It's, it's like with a little bit of sparkle. I don't know how to explain it even. Yeah. yeah. 
so good. Uh, my twin is great. It's so heavy that I can't carry it downstairs by myself. Yeah. Which is, uh, so at one point I'm like, do I need to sell this? Because, you know, you get to that point, you know, you're like, I don't have control. And then yeah. finally someone's like, I'll help you carry it down the stairs. I was like, oh yeah. Okay. Thanks. I went to a pity <laughs> party of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What am I going to do? Me and my twin, just like a hundred pounds. <laughs> so, so let's, let's get in a little bit more around like gender and gear stuff. So what have generally been your experiences around like gender identities and gear? So gender identities and gear, I can think of it in kind of a two part uh, answer to this because there's the uh, touring and the live shows and dealing with gear and the gendering of uh, musical instruments that way. And then there's the actual instruments, like what is, why is loud uh, a stereotypical uh, male aspect? Like that's, you know, that's powerful. And why is uh, sensitive or something a, a, a female attribute? So that would be the actual instruments, you know, timbres and sound. And, and what about the interfaces, you know? What are they set up for? You know, there's some clear problems with some uh, companies just pushing gear towards boys, which is so outdated now. In my mind, I live a little bit in a bubble, though. <laughs> <laughs> I just assume we're all evolved. And I mean, I, I, you know, I have so many women's and girl students throughout the years that I, I just I forget that um, there's still uh, some of those pedals named. I can't remember now. I think I nicely blocked it. But they are uh, like like the pussy melter, and yeah. The like uh, whatever are those uh, like vagina guitars? Uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, you know, again, it used to be worse. So in yes. the in the early two thousands, my students and I would like cut up pictures of like dudes with the warlocks and you know a girl in a bikini. We put them on the wall and laugh, and you know, while we we're yeah. taking the guitar lessons. So those things are slowly dying out thanks to publications like She Shreds, Top Tom Magazine. And, you know, just in the last year alone, I feel like I can breathe a little bit. Yeah. It's fantastic to see uh, people of different races and also uh, genders doing videos and, you know, guitars at Guitar Center. They're trying. They're trying. They're Bless their little <laughs> hearts. <laughs> Yeah, it does feel like it's been a pretty quick shift. I mean, I know that it hasn't actually been that quick, but it, like it, just over the last, I don't know, five five years or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been pretty dramatic. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, yeah. So I, I leave this question pretty open-ended to allow, you know, people to kind of go wherever they want with it. You mentioned something about interfaces. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that's connected to gender? Yeah. So I'm working on uh, a sound art installation thing actually with um where i built instruments but made out of uh fabric and uh things i've actually i've made my dresses out of or outfits sometimes so i would sew them and i'd make a little keyboard and then i connect it through the uh computer or we can you know i've also have it we're set up with its own speaker and it's really loud and we can make all kinds of soundscapes <laughs> mm-hmm. uh so the idea with those experiments including one that's called a sound painting where you can touch it has a fabric uh, overlay and ideas of things being, I don't want to say 
not always feminine, but natural. So mm-hmm. a natural fiber compared to a Apollo, you know, like this, I'm just yeah. showing, uh, this is, this is pretty techie looking. It looks, yeah, I mean, it looks like a spaceship. Yeah. And I'm all about <laughs> the Millennium Falcon and everything, but there's something cute about the Millennium Falcon though, but it's it not something cute. cute about like, <laughs> yeah, but like the hardness you're talking about, like the actual physical uh, material of that, that the actual device is made of, or that the, con- like that is attached to the contact mic that is making the sound. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the, the sound, the installation that I've been working on. Yeah. It's exactly that where, uh, I did one show and people came and they would touch things and, and it would make music and it was, it's kind of, you know, it's supposed to be fun. Like it's supposed to be kind of funny too. And what is, you know, what is labor for women? You have like, um, all the sewing stuff, but you can also mm. make music on it. I made the feminist jukebox, which was sewn out of some fabric I, I bought on a, they do custom fabric, spoon flower. <laughs> mm. So you can hit things. And this is probably one of my favorite instruments, but you hit things and it'll play different music from women all around the world. But the, it looks like, um, it looks like a bunch of little records on a box, which is yeah. something kind of different. Totally. I love how you're connecting the the idea of like women's work and the tradition of what women's work is supposed to be and then kind of connecting that and marrying that with like with this musical piece which you know in certain cultures takes on different meanings yeah. in our culture tends to be fairly masculine right. uh and so yeah that's really cool and even just the physical like I love the idea of using material like like you're saying natural material like dresses or uh you know things like that to to impart that Right. Yeah. That's the idea. And then I use a lot of threads. Um, and, uh, I did flowers at one point <laughs> when, when I showed it though, uh, I like this little girl came up and she like touched it and she was just so surprised that sound like this. All of a sudden there's a loud sound because I put in things like, um, uh, the sound of like things crashing from outside a window, but like really magnified. It can be one sound or, um, you know, loud drones, kind of like, um, noise music. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, where is this coming from? <laughs> so sort of subverting expectations of sound uh, yeah. attached to a particular item. Right. Cool. Can you talk a little bit more about, you'd, you'd mentioned a little bit about your experiences with like touring and recording to, or even just like buying or purchasing gear or whatever, accessing it, however you want to address that. Uh, sure. First, I saw that you had uh, Fanny's music store mm-hmm. on here. So great. I still have to go there. Um, I want to go there. Have you, you've never been there? No, I can't I believe it. I haven't either. <laughs> they, I'm going to order there's... a t-shirt though. Cause I... I did order a t-shirt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, get me that t-shirt. I can't actually go there right now. But yeah, I'm going to do I'll, that. I'll have it close to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Buying gear is, is definitely frustrating, but if, if I didn't spend the past you know, four, four years of getting an MFA and learning about technology, I, I, I was still feeling frustrated when I would go to these places. My students, even now, I mean, after all these years, they're, they're like, I tried to buy a guitar, but he wasn't helpful. And, and then I'm just like, oh, where did you go? I started, you know, I start getting like, like that um, mm-hmm. because they need a guitar for their lessons. And then uh, there's a couple places in, in Brooklyn that were great and they, they are great. And when a lot of those stores started, the smaller shops started closing, the people with all the experience, they had to go to these bigger mainstream places like Guitar Center and Sam Ash. So mm-hmm. now I go there and I can, now I can find some 
little some some people who are actually cool working there you know little little pockets of uh, yeah of success yes <laughs> <laughs> but yeah tour um you know as a guitarist so a lot of times we get up on stage and you know these festival people would bring out your gear and get it ready because they want you on and off the stage I mean they work hard and I mm-hmm. totally respect it I've been working in clubs forever but they'd always get the keyboard and then they'd say like okay so we have your keyboard over here and that and like I wish I could play keyboard. <laughs> I'm the worst piano player. I am the guitarist. And they always think that, they always thought Kenny, who is my, or the piano a player in our band, who's played Carnegie Hall. I mean, this guy is mm-hmm. really good. They, they never think he's the, they, you know, they think he's some, I don't know what instrument, but they never put him there. And they always try to put me there. <laughs> and uh, I've heard even funnier, you know, I mean, obviously being in the band with Kathleen, she's, she has, mountains of stories about that so she's she's quite protective (laughs) and knows how to handle these things quite you know like fast but um, Mm -hmm. but in general that's been the main thing we've had a lot of issues with you know I hate to even say this because it's you know I I don't want to stress the point but even the last tours we had sound sound men just you know not having any paying any attention to our needs assuming that we didn't know what we're talking about and I can't say, I know what they're thinking. I don't know what they're thinking. And they could be right. doing it to every band, right. but it just seemed like more than I've ever seen. I didn't get a monitor, you know, I'm like, mm. you'll be fine. That kind of that thing. I'm like, you don't know me. And I'm the lead guitarist. So I need to hear. <laughs> that, did they actually say that? Like you don't need one over and over and over. Yeah. At a festival, mostly smaller shows. Okay. okay. Festivals had extra monitors. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like uh. yeah. yeah but yeah telling you what you need yeah not, a lot not assuming that you know what you're talking about yeah. yeah yeah I yeah. mean there's been funny ones too where this isn't this isn't funny haha it's crying on the inside but when the, when the guy's <laughs> like you guys are girl bad I like girl bands I like Tegan and Sarah stuff like that I'm like okay <laughs> thank you I don't know you know yeah yeah all right. So, so you work with a lot of like, you, you do a lot of teaching, right? Like you work with a lot of people kind of starting out, like what gear tips do you usually give them when, when they're kind of first coming to you and looking to, to get started, mm-hmm. you know? So most of my students are actually adult women, uh, almost 90%. Um, there's some teenage girls and a, only a couple of kids, but they, most of them want to start off by really getting an instrument, a guitar and being able to express themselves with it. Right. So we go through gear. It's a really it's an important subject. And I always, you know, they're like, well, I got an acoustic because I thought I had to start on an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? Who says you have to, st- that doesn't even make sense. And I feel like that's just a thing that's been going around forever. Yeah, I don't understand. It's and such I was a like, funny thing. It's the worst idea, uh, you know, from working at Girls Rock Camp. We put them on electric guitars for a few reasons, but yeah. one of them is it's easier to learn on. The strings are thinner. You can make a lot of noise. Lower. Actions lower. Yeah. So I'm like, do you really want to play acoustic? And they're like, not at all. I'm like, well, we don't. there's no graduating to, you know, in fact, just go get electric and an amp. So we usually start working out that. And they're pretty excited to hear the amp for the first time and get kind of get some volume. And and at first it's yeah. weird because you're like, where is the sound coming from? Because you're so used to, you know, if you're, right. play, if you're learning on some, you know, beat up old acoustic, it's different feel completely. Um, but we always go through the stages. I make sure that they're very much in tune. And then we talk a lot about reverb and delay, and you know, things like gain and EQ. Cause you know, every amp or pedal is, has a different language. 
Yeah. It's every, there's so many different ways to say volume or distortion. <laughs> I know. You try to ask somebody what gain means. Try to ask mm-hmm. the wrong guy that, I mean, I, I don't want to say that, but they will be like, it's gain. Gain mean gain. You know, I'm like, well, how is it different? You know, like I, I get yeah. it, but <laughs> yeah, just level volume gain sometimes is all the same knob, you know? Yeah. Right. And it's kind of like saying, here's a, you know, here's a bunch of paint, go crazy. It's like, well, can I have some kind of parameter, you know? <laughs> so I always say to put everything to zero. And then once everything's on zero, slowly go through and lift them all up just a little bit until you find the sound you like. Uh, yeah. Most people don't know what sound they like yet. So that takes a little bit of time. They eventually get there. Yeah. So they're they're trying to figure it out and you're kind of giving them some like helpful tools to get started. Yeah. I feel like not knowing what you like sound wise is actually one of the biggest challenges when people start out. Like they can be like, I want it. Yeah. It's like, you can be like, I want to sound like this, but like when you're there by yourself, you're like, I don't know. Right. Right. That's a big, that's a big thing. Cause I, you know, I say, well, who do you like? And if they, you know, point out something like, oh, they have a, they have an overdrive pedal. That's what you need. And then they feel so much better not playing that song on an acoustic is like, oh, I sound like that, you know? When I started teaching, I mean, the internet was still kind of iffy and the Wi-Fi was bad and there weren't like millions of songs in tab and you couldn't, Mm -hmm. there was that, there was just that kind of a dinosaur site where you could look up people's pedal boards. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I forget what that's called. Um, I was just pedal slut or something. It has like a name like that. Yeah. 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 I don't remember. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Probably. I mean, there's gear sluts. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Pedal. I don't know. Effects pedal 101. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So you could look up like Johnny Greenwood, you know, and then you'd see, but it was only the big bands like that. But now you can find out all that information. And my students are almost always completely overwhelmed by the information. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, okay, actually, you know, let's, let's strip this down. (laughs) How about one, one, you know, like you want to sound like metal, let's get you like a metal zone and right. we'll get you one like l- delay and then you're good Yeah, <laughs> for yeah. whatever this particular thing is. But maybe the, the recipe for, you know, uh, white stripes might be like an octave pedal and a uh-huh. distortion or something. I don't know. Recipe uh, is a great us. word. Yeah. I love it. In fact, it kind of goes back into the like what's feminine and masculine. Mm, we have a nice recipe of pedals. That's interesting. I had never thought about that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Totally. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I feel like, you know, unless you're like, I just, I only want to do folk music. I mm-hmm. want to play Joni Mitchell's my favorite. I want to do this forever. Then you need a, like, you need a pretty good uh, acoustic for that. Right. Yeah. You know, like you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to beat up one. You want, you want to be that, you know, if you have goals like that. You want probably an acoustic electric. It's so interesting how people start off on such terrible gear, the hardest gear to use when they don't know how to use it. Yes. It's like, <laughs> yeah, let's teach everyone on a stick shift. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, yeah. I feel like that's a good analogy. Like the stick shift start, like ship, starting on a ship stick shift versus starting on an acoustic. I feel like it's a similar <laughs> analogy. <laughs> well, I also see uh, women and girls and men give up. All right. So let's talk more about some of the, some of your like kind of graduate work and teaching stuff. Can you just talk a little bit about like some of your however you want to connect this to like gender and and music stuff? So you you said you were teaching a class on pink noises and then I think you were mm-hmm. teaching some other courses as well. But just like how you weave gender into that content or other identities. So uh, education is something that I, I definitely believe a lot in. You're a professor, so you understand it. I'm and this is probably a side note, but I'm working on PhD applications right now. Yeah. For next year. 
And um, what type of program are you are you looking for? Looking for something to do experimental composition, but I'm also mm-hmm. looking into musicology mm-hmm. with gender. Can you explain uh, what musicology is for folks who might not be familiar? Uh, so musicology, I guess, would be the history of, of music. So my specific as I've been writing out some of my PhD things, <laughs> uh, my specific goal for PhD or to for a book, um, the politics of gender in relation to creative practice and historical processes in electroacoustic music, electric guitar, sonic arts. Cool. So drawing attention to the history of the, the mass history of women who play electric guitar, and also the mass history of women composers. So many of them been, have been hidden and bringing them out. I mean, it's just, it's, it's extremely important. I have, I teach a class called music, it's language and culture. It's a general music history class for undergrads at Brooklyn college and Montclair. And, you know, we, we have to go, we go through the history, go like Gregorian chants and we start with like Hildegard um, and then, you know, we go into medieval music and Baroque, and then we go into classical and romantic and all, all that. But the books I have, there's just like, after a chapter, there's a, there's a side note, you know, here's Clara Schumann. Isn't uh-huh. she pretty? She was uh-huh. married to, and I'm like, we don't care who Wait, she's does married. does it really say that? Yeah. They always start with married to Barbara Strozzi, married yeah. to, like, we don't, do I care who she's married to? Um, no one cares. We're talking about the music. That's wild. Yeah. It's so funny because like I feel like there's this this piece of that that the history component that I I don't I, I have some general knowledge of like I know about her, but like like connecting the dots between what happened historically and what's happening now, um, I think really provides some of the context for people's experiences. Like this is obviously the the experiences people have right now are not coming out of nowhere, right? And yeah. I think that's that's right. It's so important. And it's not something that I think most people are aware of. Like I having not studied, like my background's in psychology and gender mm-hmm. studies, but like not specifically no. in music. So it's like, you know, you shouldn't have to have a PhD in music to know this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> That's the point. General That's, a good... knowledge. <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So Pink Noises, can you talk about that a little bit? So I... I love Tara Rogers' book, Pink Noises, which is a history of women in uh, electronic music, all the way back to Pauline Oliveros, all the way, you know, through current uh, sound artists. I, you know, became friends with her online. I've always looked up to her writing. Um, I just think she, she did this really early on, you know, she, mm-hmm. there's a, I guess the book came out in 2010, but she started a website called Pink Noises really early 2001 or something. So I was fortunate enough that she was willing to talk to my class too. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah. It was great. That's awesome. But again, an hour with a bunch of people is like nothing. We barely got, we, we didn't even scratch the surface of what I brought her for, (laughs) but you know, but what we did was just read and and got to know each uh, woman in it. And yeah, and got to understand like how far this goes back. You know, the book goes back about to the late sixties, 1960s with instruments like the Bukla and the Moog, you know, um, and women, you know, being a big part of technology and electronic music back then, you know, then going into the seventies, eighties and all the way up to, you know, when the book came out, 2003 ish, the interviews were over, but, you know, even before what's in the book, you also have 
women in electronic music back to Delia Derbyshire, who did the Doctor Who soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be early 60s. And then if you keep going, there's um, uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, Sisters with Transistors. Mm-hmm. Oh, did, did that come out already? Well, I saw it. I paid the eight bucks to see it at the film. And, and now it's kind of hidden again. I don't know when it comes back out, but it's absolutely worth it. I've seen the trailer, but I haven't actually seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So that goes to the history before. I feel like Tara Rogers' book starts uh, late 60s up to the present, and that goes into women uh, before that and up to the present, too. Suzanne Siani, things like that. Right. Yeah. It's uh, so I think the thing that's interesting that that people like that is, I think, the thing that is the most pressing issue around this with regard to our conversation here is that technology can mean a lot of different things and the way that technology gets gendered is it's it's like socialized right like that doesn't come out of nowhere uh that's right so so can you talk a little bit more about that like how it kind of went from where it was before to where we are with with gender and technology now i don't know how much you know i don't know how much uh it has gotten better but not much when I started the Sonic Arts MFA, I was still the only woman, the only girl in the whole department, you know, the whole department. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> now there's more. You know, I talked to somebody who teaches at SAE, uh, which is a sound, we learn Pro Tools and sound engineering here. And uh, he said, you know, full classes, eight classes a day, maybe one woman of the whole eight courses. Ooh. 30 guys in each class. So I don't even know what percentage we're getting. We're not even getting one woman in course it's like there's still not a lot I don't know I don't exactly know why I believe it's been socialized as is the right word out of us for you know there's different arguments and you know I won't say that I'm like a I'm not an expert on this but I I'm studying and trying to understand it desperately (laughs) like I can't quote all the all the experts right now but uh no one is expecting that You're okay. I'm just a uh, I, will, I will ask for your citations later. So it's no pressure. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just a rock guitarist. I don't know. But I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I think that there's a lot of um, messiness involved. There's a lot of, I don't know. I actually, it's not, I, I'm like kind of drawing a blank. What do you well, come- So, so, I mean, as we've been having this conversation, we've talked a little bit about the different ways that technology works. And like, I guess, so even thinking about like, oh, kitchen, like there's a lot of gear in a kitchen. Yes. Right. Like that's technology. A blender is technology. That's true. Uh, You know, using a dishwasher or washing, you know, like that's technology. It is. There are expectations around that. There are expectations around it. What's interesting of, of you saying that is um, I feel like chefs are now both men and women. I think, yes. I feel like cooking is almost an equal gender, <laughs> equal, you know I what I mean? Yeah. I don't know what the breakdown is. I know like top chefs are top chefs. more, more uh, like more likely to be men. I don't know the exact breakdown, but like. So top chefs are mo- more likely to be men than women? Yes. So once once why? you get paid a lot of money, well, because oh, you get paid a lot of why. money and you get the prestige, yeah, that's why, and that's obviously the case in pretty much every space. But I don't know, uh, and I don't, I, I haven't researched that area, but I'd be very curious if there's like the same like glass escalator effect that like <laughs> men who are like you know in a profession that tends to be more women, and I don't think that is the case necessarily with chefs. I uh, get cooking. Are, 
with cooking in general. So it's interesting. If you get paid for it, it's something that men do. If it's something that you do in your house and is unpaid, then you don't. There you go. Women do it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But so technology. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. So it's like thinking about which technology is uh, women are expected to have some sort of uh, knowledge or ownership of. Right. Well, I mean, I think um, that was one of the arguments is kind of what you just said was technology could be money making in the beginning. So right. uh, it, it got a little bit male dominated, especially, um, you know, some of the famous uh, computer labs at Columbia. There's an idea that men can fix things. It's a science. So it's not as organic, but actually it is. You know, even um, looking at a pedal board used to be really intimidating, I think, to a lot of girls. I think it's a little less intimidating now, but I'm not sure if, if the reasons are connected to, I got that because you won't understand it. Um, I don't know if that's the connection. I guess that's what I am. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, too, if there's like a part of that that's like because there's more media attention to, uh, you know, women talking about about gear or more spaces where they can research it online or whatever, that it becomes more normalized, that that's something that they would be interested in. Um, right. It's less of a mystery. I feel like the the demystification piece of yeah. that is so important, you know? And some of it, you know, goes into like um, soldering. So I have a soldering station and I feel really proud of my soldering station, but I feel like I only did this a few years ago and I said, that's it. I'm going to fix my own pedals. I'm not going to bring them to or my guitars. I'm not going to just keep handing them off. And then I was like, well, maybe we need to like start helping girls learn soldering. Mm. Um, so then they can feel that there's nothing uh, you need strength for. In fact, I think small hands and good eyes are actually a benefit. <laughs> um, but why yeah. is soldering a, a, you know, a male thing? I, yeah, I don't know. For me, uh, I still don't know how to solder. Like I know how to solder, but like I don't have a soldering station. I don't fix my own pedals. And for me, it's always been like, I'm afraid I'm going to get in there and break something. Mm-hmm. I'm getting more confident. I'm to the point now where I'm like, oh, I have a couple of LEDs that are out on some of my pedals. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll just buy an LED online and try and fix it. Well, you will break things because that's, we all do. It doesn't yeah. matter for men or women. We break things with soldering and all that stuff all the time. Right. I mean, most of the pedals I've built are broken. <laughs> now <laughs> I drop it and I'm like, I didn't do a very good job, but that's how you learn it. And everyone goes through that, that there is a, you know, I tell, I tell a lot of my women students, they'll say, I'm trying to learn a song. And my boyfriend just grabbed the guitar and played it and then handed it back to me. I'll never be that good. I'm like, he, he's like, he just learned on the spot. And I said, well, he's not telling you that he spent all those hours in his parents' basement with the bong learning this stuff. He's telling <laughs> you that he, he's kind of like self-taught or something. There's a, there's a way to, there's a, desire to hide the labor involved. And, you know, I, I practice so much. I really do. And I want people to know you have to practice. We were working on the song Jolene this week with some students. And they're like, I was like, so, you know, I played the song a hundred times before I got it like her. Yeah. And they're like, what? I'm like, it probably took me cause it's so fast. And you just have to say, you're not going to get this in a week. I'm like a hundred yeah. to get it one time all the way through at the right speed without a mistake. Okay. That's only a hundred times practicing it. So what, what is the shame of saying like how, how hard, you know, like how much practice or, you know, I, I know the idea of music supposed to be like, it's magic. I just open my mouth and sing, you know, <laughs> and I wish I could smoke and mirrors are beautiful and all that, but there is so much labor and hard work in 
building pedals and all the mistakes and learning a couple of things on guitar or bass, you know, playing the wrong thing on a bass or, you know, uh, rhythms. All of it. Yeah, all for sure. It. Yeah. So I think like norm <laughs> normalizing that it takes time to get there. It's not this magic thing that you just automatically do. Right. And that like it does require work like and you don't have to sound perfect right away either. And you're not expected to. No. It's literally part of the process. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm curious a little bit about. Uh, so obviously you're in this a couple of different worlds with regard to music. Right. So you're in this like kind of electronic experimental soundscape space. Uh, sound art, and then you're also in this more like traditional rock band space or punk space. How? What are your experiences, or how does that feel differently to you, or or the same? Well, the uh, the Julie Ruin is you know it's on hiatus right now. Mm -hmm. um, I guess you know a lot of people are, and that's uh, that's a you know that's a band that's a collaboration. Um, we write all the songs together. I'm putting all this. I would put a lot of music in Dropbox, and uh, we get to practice. And Kathleen would sing over some chunks of it and that was super fun there's just definitely something different with collaborating that i'm more natural with so getting into the sound art part of uh this new phase of my life <laughs> is is kind of new but it's it's also filling in all these gaps like how much i love timbre but i also love art i have a degree in art history before all this so art school was my thing we all went to art school in the julie run um <laughs> it's a requirement <laughs> <laughs> at least one semester. I didn't go to music school. I, yeah, I went to our school, but again, I was saying earlier, I'm the first person in my family to go to school being from the Midwest, you know, uh, I didn't even go to college till my twenties. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was 17 or 18. I was just hanging out, going to shows until my twenties. And then I was working at CBGB's and I'm like, okay, I've got some, a little bit settled. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, go to art school for a while. And I got some pretty good grades. And then I was got scholarships to Columbia, which is still unbelievable. I still am not sure how I got in, uh, but I did. And it was the hardest because, thing I ever did. Because you're great. That's why. No, uh, <laughs> you know what? I think they saw how much I liked. I do like learning a lot. I think, I don't know. It was a mix of luck and, and just being like really excited. about. I don't know, but I did it. It was the hardest thing I ever did. It took me my whole twenties to get my undergrad. So I got that. I was like, I have to get an undergrad before 30. I don't know why you set these limits. So at that time, yeah. so the, I mean, the rock band stuff and working at CBGB stuff, I was going to say. Right. Um, so seeing live music, which is, we all miss so much right now. Whew, I was going to say, it's like, I would go see my least favorite band right now and <laughs> be like, this is great. Even the opener, you know, because we're just so used, you know, wanting to see something live. But that's, that's pretty much a big part of who I am. I've always been in bands with girls. Uh, there's been some bands. I played drums with all guys. And if they're not, if they're not evolved, it's not fun. Um, <laughs> How so? There's been some bands where the, where the sexist jokes weren't, they were, they weren't even witty. Maybe they're witty. Um, At least try. <laughs> yeah. Witty is funny, but uh, in general, being a, a woman drummer when in the nineties was still fairly new. Um, there was, I feel there were more women drummers in the nineties than women guitarists. And then, you know, focusing more on guitar in the, in the two thousands, I feel like, and I started seeing more and more guitarists and the, they just kept coming up. And 
it was just fantastic. A lot of my students have started bands or gone on, you know, from Girls Rock Camp. Some of them have gotten pretty famous and I think it's great. I think they had, again, working at Girls Rock Camp was to do what I wish I had growing up. But uh, the instruments, uh, drums and guitar, I would say, and bass, electric, I think are still often gendered. Am I using that phrase right? Uh, they're often thought of yeah. as, they're still thought of as male instruments um, because the covers of those magazines and the media still you know, portrays rock gods on guitar, which is still kind of a confusing and frustrating thing. Uh, in the sound arts, the, the gendering is, well, there's the technology part. You're spending your time working in Pro Tools with all of this uh, gear and sound systems and analog equipment. You will, if you try to go into a recording studio, I still feel like that's the last place where uh, we're not completely comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I could be wrong. Um, and there's a couple, there's obviously exceptions, but I, I got very sad about that. I, I finally just gave up at the idea of, of trying to produce in a studio because produce, I have recorded and produced a lot of girl bands. I'm like, maybe this is what I should just, you know, and I, I finally just was like, this is just so fiercely masculine that at least in New York that I give up. And I hate to say mm. that. I'm like, it's not ready. Yeah. It's not worth it for you to have to push through at this point. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. And there are the right women to do it, but that's still the last um, untouched frontier. <laughs> Why do you think that is? I think that just might be some, just some really old ideas. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Cause I wonder if like, it's almost like, like a engineer is like a super musician, you know, it's like it's all of the technology and none of the playing, yeah. uh, you know. So I wonder if the technology piece of that is connected somehow to the to the fact that there are so few women engineers and um, producers. Uh, I would say, yeah, probably because mm-hmm. it's it's intimidating. There's a lot of, you know, not magic. None of the playing, but like less of the playing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like they're like the God. They, they have the magic. And, you know, yeah. maybe it's like directors of films, too. Or, yeah. Or a director, like a sim- symphony, uh, you know, conductors, like all, conductors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's it seems like a similar situation. Definitely. Yeah. It's very hard to name one female conductor. I can't. I, well, I have a friend that does it, but like, I don't <laughs> know. Other than, that, other than that, I don't know a lot of people who can conduct. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting and rare. And I think that that is, it is, it is the like godlike role, the power imbued in that role right. is huge. So it's, a, I think, man, like the combination of tech and power there is big. It is. We crack the code. <laughs> I hope so. That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I, I remember reading an interview that that Kathleen had done when y'all kind of started getting together playing. And she had said something about like, oh, it's we're it's it's I'm finally I'm playing with people who really like know music uh, and like can play well and like can talk about it and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about your experience going from a person who like, you know, as you've gone from maybe just starting out to learning, like to someone who's like super knowledgeable and teaching and everything, like what's that journey been like for you? That's funny that she said, she said that. Uh, (laughs) I don't remember when it it must've been a minute ago when you first started playing together, but yeah. Oh yeah. She, yeah. She's, she said that before, I guess, because Kenny, the keyboardist and I will talk in theory often. We're like, 
let's try the sixth. No, go to the go to the minor third. No, let's take mm-hmm. it up. And and uh, she always finds that really funny. Yeah, she always finds it funny. I don't know why. I mean, Does she start laughing. <laughs> yeah, because we uh-huh. start nerding out. We both like music theory a lot. I think. Mm-hmm. I also got into I got into playing guitar kind of late too. I mean, I was about eighteen, um, but I really got into theory a few years after that. I, you know, I was playing, and then I was like, theory is so fun. I don't know why. I just like ate it up. I don't think anyone needs to learn piano as a child to know theory. Mm-hmm. I think anyone can learn it. I got very excited about sight reading. I just thought it was. It all started to come together. It's, it's a little bit like solving problems. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny that I found music theory, uh, really fun, but learning pro tools was hor- horrible for me, <laughs> <laughs> but I had to do it. And I, then I just became determined to do it. But music theory just, just came naturally as I learned it. I'm like, Oh, like the, all the gears started turning and it was, yeah. Making sense. yeah. it was like, I felt it was like paving a driveway. Um, was there something in particular that you feel like may really helped make it click for you? I say that as a person who doesn't understand theory very well. Ah, well, I know I knew I wanted to be a teacher of it, and I think when I started teaching it is when I when I started putting up flyers for private lessons. I put a picture of Mary Ford playing guitar, mm-hmm. and um, this is uh, it's so funny. So it was all over like Williamsburg in the early two thousands. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I, I was like, I need to just. I took a class on it, and I'm like, I'm gonna. I need to get really good at this now if I'm gonna be teaching it because I believe in it. So I just got like, I would just practice all day long and, you know, hours and hours and just really got into it. But as you regurgitate information, yeah. teaching is the best way of learning. So the more you review it and the more you get into it, you know, the better, but I've always, you know, just being a huge music fan my whole life, putting some of these things and being like, Oh, now I understand that. Or I never thought I could even play this song before. And it's only three chords, you know? Oh Yeah. And then, and then start to learning, learning why it works. Uh, I just think it's fascinating. I really, I thought it was so much fun. So yeah, I mean, in, in the Julie Ruin, uh, me and Kenny are kind of nerdy on it. I believe he has a degree in composition. I mean, he's, he's obviously, he's extremely gifted piano player, but the rest of them are just, you know, they know what they know. Kathy, she was also in Bikini Kill. She's just a really solid bassist and she, Mm -hmm. you know, she knows the basic notes, but she's all feel so I I think like some of that together really worked out yeah it just kind of like clicked in a way that made sense yeah but it's also helpful because Kathleen could say something like you know like the na 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 in that one song and I'm like yeah I do (laughs) I do know that (laughs) and I'll be like oh you're talking about the second bridge with the blah blah blah." and like that's where go yeah like I I think that helped um, when she would try to communicate then I understand that when you try to communicate your ideas it's it's helpful to people that can try <laughs> to come back with something. <laughs> yeah, totally. So if you were speaking to folks in the music gear industry or the music industry more broadly who wanted to make some sort of change and they were asking you how to do it, what would you tell them? In the music gear industry? Music gear industry, or you could, it could be more broad if you'd like. It's essential to have <laughs> women and men equally shown playing these instruments, also different races, because there's just no one type of person that likes any of this. And the idea that only that we have, you know, men liking guitar, you're just alienating 50% of the population. Like, don't you Mm -hmm. want that money? Okay, first of all, there's that. (laughs) 
That's important. Yes. Yeah. I know there's direct marketing, but you know, and some people are really offenders understanding this. They're putting a lot more girls and women and they're getting this out there and it's, and it's, it's fantastic. It's great. Uh, music doesn't belong to anyone. It's for everybody. And uh, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's been a lot of companies that are doing a really great job enforcing this and they need to uh, keep it going. This is not a trend. This isn't just like a three-year thing and then you move on to something else. This is ongoing now and this is the way it is. We are, it's a new way, okay? New way. That's what it's got to be. Nice. I like that. Uh, <laughs> seeing into the future, I think. But I think that's important because I do think people might, there's the potential for it to be viewed that way for sure. And I think yeah. there probably was a minute in the 90s when people thought that as well. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. agree. <laughs> so is there anything else? Uh, you talked a little bit in the beginning about some of the stuff that you're working on. Anything else in particular coming up that that folks should know about for you? That it's We're in a quarantine, so no pressure. <laughs> Um, they want to read. They can read all of your PhD applications. <laughs> yeah, they want to help me edit them. I need help. <laughs> you know, being in the pandemic and so on, there's no. You know, we can't play any shows. Um, you know, being someone who I'm like, look at me play guitar and I put on Instagram. I wish I was like that. I'm trying to. People have ample amounts of confidence. Throw me a little bit. <laughs> Share some of that. I just started doing that. And I am. it was more proud and I am inspired by you doing it. Thank you. It's, it has been, it's been scary, Yeah, but I, I feel like, like there's so many people doing it. I might yeah, as well just try that's right. it and see. And it's, I think it's somebody, great. Thanks. <laughs> if somebody makes a weird comment, guess what? It's my page. I can delete it. That's right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So I think what you're doing is perfect. I think girls and women should just keep doing that. Just putting little clips up and, you know, I'm speaking for myself. I'm trying to get myself to be like, you know, I'm not somebody who likes to be the front on the stage. Mm-hmm. I like to be kind of behind the scenes, happy with my gear <laughs> um, in the back. <laughs> um, but I'm going to try to do more flashy stuff because, you know, you can't leave everything to the imagination, you know. So, uh, yeah, I don't have any shows coming up. Just doing a lot of work at home, trying to branch out with other uh, women out there to perhaps work on stuff in the future and uh, bring more women into sound arts. Let's get creative with some noise music. That's what I'm into. Yeah. Creating your own sounds. You know, Girls Rock Camp will always be part of something I want to work on. I think if, you know, I would love to put something together for, for girls and women learning soldering. Also, you know, fixing and taking care of your equipment. That would be great. But it's, you know, yeah, collaborating is really hard right now. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I look forward to the time when we can all get together again and, you know, just feel that energy of music live, which, you know, maybe this is, this is quite a lesson in how much I miss it. Cause I didn't know I'd be that. I'd be like, I need a break. I'm like, wow. Now <laughs> someone playing a trumpet in the subway, I'm like, so beautiful. You know, I can't <laughs> oh, even play, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's music and they're trying and I don't care, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, and I'm excited to see all of your new uh, upcoming sound art projects. Uh, <laughs> figure you. out, see what happens for you for school. There's a lot coming up. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, how can listeners stay in contact with you or hear more from you if they want to? They want to keep up. They can follow me on Instagram. They can go to my website. I'll be keeping up uh, new videos and things up there. And you know, they can reach out. 
I think my email is right on my website. I'm doing some group workshops for women guitarists this year. If anyone's interested in joining, especially now is a good time because you can just practice and get really, really good mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want mm-hmm. or just get yep. creative. That's the idea. Cool. Well, we'll have all of the, your contact info in the show notes. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank this you has been so really much. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. That was a really fun conversation with Sarah. I, I just love getting a chance to talk to her. I mean, she just has so much awesome stuff going on and like some really good insight into uh, gender and music sort of generally. And I really want to take one of her classes. <laughs> uh, so as mentioned, if you want to hear more about Sarah or anything else we discussed, it is likely referenced in the show notes. So check that out. So Sarah had mentioned in our conversation that most of her gear is fairly inexpensive. And this is something that I think about a lot and has definitely come up in a number of interviews uh, on the podcast here. And it's something that I think about a lot, especially when I'm doing things like the social media for Midriff as well. So the music gear community is based around music creation, right? We know that. That's what it's here for. But it's also based much of it in capitalism, right? So companies are selling a product and much of the music gear space is based on things like demoing, demoing the gear, displaying it somehow, discussing it um, in a way that may want, may make you want to buy it or convince you to do so, right? So this is particularly complicated right now as the pandemic has sort of created this space where many people have lost their jobs and are probably more likely to be like selling their gear than buying it. And, you know, that sounds interesting because more people are are actually buying gear at, in general right now. I know that it has been a, a boon for, for many companies, but I think that if anything gets more at the importance of music gear in our culture, and especially for the folks who are able to have access to it in the first place. Anyway, I will say I love gear, um, but I also understand that there's a real privilege in having access to it. And that the constant like hashtag gear porn posts can lead those who don't have money to partake in gear culture feel like they, you know, aren't able to join the conversation. And ultimately, gear is a tool to help you achieve a particular sound or emotion through song, through music. And that isn't something that should be exclusive, right? So, you know, personally, my situation, if I'm able to, with any extra income, I do tend to buy music gear. And I have done this for years. I don't spend money on things like clothes or really much else. Um, my husband is into bikes and builds them for a living. And, you know, he gets discounts on much of the gear related to his hobby. So he does, he buys, you know, bike stuff pretty inexpensively. I buy guitar stuff pretty inexpensively. He, if he wants a new bike, he will build one. <laughs> You know, that's how we how we do it. Uh, I don't have a lot of super fancy gear other than a couple of pieces that I got pretty inexpensively years ago. And I start that are, that is worth more money now. And I and I started buying and trading pretty early when I had a discount in my guitar shop days. And, you know, at that time, let's be real, I put some of it on credit cards, which, you know, I did eventually pay off, but it took a while. You know, much of what I buy, I end up buying used, sometimes even at like flea markets. Um, They have some good stuff sometimes if you can find it. Uh, So I I treat it like an investment or at the very least something I can resell for cost. 
and you know the time that I've spent researching and learning about gear sort of helps me recognize deals as well. So I also usually get a pedal or something similar from my parents, as I mentioned, for Christmas, like once a year. And I know not everyone has that. That's a privilege, right? So I'm also a person with a middle-class job and a fairly low cost of living. Like I don't live in New York, LA, even, you know, I, I but I'm able to keep it pretty, pretty low, even though I have a child. And that allows enough for like maybe a pedal or a mic here or there. Um, and since I've been collecting stuff since I was 20, all of that tends to add up. Even if our income means we don't go on like fancy vacations, I feel very lucky to be able to participate in the gear culture at all. And I'm saying this just because it's sort of like, I know everybody has a little bit different situation, right? And that's kind of how, where, where I've come with, with my relationship to gear and money. You know, in, in many ways, gear is a passion of mine, but it does bring with it some guilt, right? I, you know, I'm wondering about like, am I playing into this space that glorifies fancy gear and looks down on those who are use, using like inexpensive gear? As Katie Otto mentioned in episode 21, there are many in the industry who won't take you seriously if you don't have the like, quote unquote, right gear. Or, you know, sometimes even worse, they'll encourage you to buy gear that you can't really afford, um, but feel like you have to have for some reason. And sometimes watching gear videos and walls of expensive gear and beautiful backdrops and things like that makes this kind of like even clearer. And many folks like don't have access to gear in the first place at all. And, you know, if they don't get a jump start at a younger age, they may never become musicians in the first place or get to participate in the power of music and gear at all, or, you know, <laughs> from a capitalist standpoint, uh, they will never become consumers of gear. So when I was working at Riot, Rhode Island, we ran, and it's still running, a gear loan program where folks could borrow gear for a small deposit, like $20, which was returned when the instrument was returned. And I know many other camps do this, and I believe She Shreds is starting a gear redistribution program as well. So there are some folks who are working on this. Uh, of course, you know, one way to address issues around gear access is to help people learn how to fix the gear that they already have. So like as Sarah mentioned, you know, whether it's through setups or DIY fixes or mods or whatever, like switching a single coil pickup to a rail humbucker instead of having to buy a new guitar, right? Like rewiring your guitar, fixing your pedals, that kind of stuff. Some people learn this out of interest and then some people learn it out of necessity, right? I also appreciate that many companies have lower priced items that can do a great job and are also really good quality. Like, as I'd mentioned before earlier in the episode, the Earthquaker Plumes, there's the GHS 3 series, like the, the classic vibe series or paranormal series Squires, Big Baby Taylors, things like that, right? Those are good quality items, but they, for what, you know, they're, they're at a different price point than maybe some of the other items that the company makes. So, you know, in this season that is so focused on consumption, I think it's important to understand or at least reflect on the privilege that those of us who participate in gear, gear culture have to be able to participate in the, in, the fuse, in the first place. And I, for one, have met many amazing people, especially over the last year, who are a part of this culture. And I feel very, very lucky to have been able to work with them. They're creating products that I think make the world better, more fun, more interesting, they're providing jobs for other people. Like, this is all super important. So this is in no way to say that folks shouldn't be buying gear. That is definitely not the point. <laughs> in fact, the point of this podcast is basically kind of related to the opposite of that, figuring out how people can use gear and, um, and in fun ways, right? So gear is fun. If you can, 
you should buy it or learn to make your own. That's that's what we're talking about here, right? But I do think it's important to acknowledge the class dynamics at play in this space. And it is our responsibility as participants in it to do what we can to make it as equitable as possible, whether it's through like the programs I mentioned above, through like entry level lines that companies create, maybe like building kits that folks can then work on on their own, creating or providing paid apprenticeships for youth or college students, you know, donating gear or money to folks who need access to it. There's lots, lots of things that people can do to kind of get us closer to where we need to be to, uh, to make the space more equitable. Okay. If you enjoy the show, please share it with others, rate and review it so more folks can hear it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening.